Welcome to the Barrier Breakdown, Disrupting Mental Health Podcast, where we talk about the clinical and practical issues that face those working in the mental health industry. Everyone and welcome to the Barrier Breakdown. My name is Erin Molino Bailey. I'm the Chief Operating Officer at Cognitive Behavior Institute, and my co-host, Dr. Kevin Caridad, who is the CEO and founder of Cognitive Behavior Institute. This is our first episode of 2022, so we hope that all of our listeners are having a calm, I'll say, and a great start to the new year. Uh, Today, we are joined by Dr. David Krause, who previously served as an assistant professor of child psychiatry at University of Massachusetts Medical School, and now serves as the founder and president of Outcome Referrals, which is a world leader in providing cutting edge outcome management services for more than 30 years. Dr. David Krause is also the inventor of two US patents, including one that controls the use of outcome data to make referrals in any field of medicine. So Dr. Krause, thank you so much for joining us here today and our listeners. Can you share a little bit with us on how you became uh, interested in mental health? Sure, and given my advanced age, maybe this takes me back quite a ways. 40 years ago, I think it was a memorable summer. I was in college. Um, I was an econ major up until this event. Um, I loved working with kids, but I thought it was fun. I thought it was play. So I'd recharge my batteries during the summer working like at summer camps. And then I'd go back to dealing with math and statistics and economics. And then I had just gotten my um, certificate in being a lifeguard and took a job at a psychiatric hospital Uh, being a lifeguard for their pool uh, just outside of Boston. And I still remember the charge nurse shaking her head and saying, I've got to hire you, but you don't know what you're doing. I've got to put you on one of the units because the pool's only open two hours a day, but these are violent kids. They're scary. You don't know what you're doing. I kept remembering those words through my head. Just sit in the background, do what other, follow the lead of other people. You don't know how to restrain kids. You don't know how to put them in four bot point restraints. Um, And by the end of the summer, I was kind of their go-to person for the kids that were the most um, kind of disturbed frequently in and out of restraints. My favorite kid, I'll call him Arlo, was this four-year-old kid that spent most of his time in the hospital in the seclusion room, locked up. He was four years old. They said he was psychotic. He put his fingers into the wire mesh and just sit there and rock and bang. Um, and then one day while I'm the lifeguard at the pool that he comes walking out with the rest of the kids fully clothed because they could never get him uh, to take a shower, change his clothes. That's when he was the most violent, most upset at life. Uh, and he walked right over to the fence and started doing the same thing, banging his head on the, the fence and, and kind of grunting. He couldn't really talk. Um, And as I'm sitting there watching him, I realized that it is uh, the dumpster out in the parking lot that he's been watching from the seclusion room and from the fence, and specifically the crows that were swirling around fighting with each other over what was in the garbage can that was mesmerizing him. And so I had a five mile commute to work every day on my bike, rain or (laughs) shine, And I started practicing how to call like a crow. 
And when I finally thought I was really good at it, uh, one day as I was walking by the seclusion room and he, the door was unlocked and it was open, which was the kind of sign of, let's see if he can reintegrate back into the community, uh, I, I caught and it instantly caught his attention. He whirled around and he just walked, marched right out of the seclusion room and followed me to the kitchen. And I poured a bowl of cereal for him and myself and he sat down and ate. Um, staff were mesmerized. They were, and I, I think it taught me that you just really have to meet people where they are. Um, and wow. anyway. Yeah, so it sounds like- Give it a point being not their first choice for lifeguard <laughs> they were just incredibly taken aback by your ability to adapt and and relate to yeah. this individual and i instantly realized that i had a different kind of calling in life if you want to say oh i love that yeah that's very cool um so we can see how um Client. So this is a perfect segue to kind of discuss your research on uh, therapist and patient matching because those relationships and, and meeting people, you know, really go to, you know, what we're here to talk about today. So can you tell us a little bit about your research and uh, we'll kind of kind of chat about that topic? Sure. Yeah, I got interested in uh, the topic of measuring outcomes and figuring out how to use it for this kind of matching process, maybe about eight years after the event I was just describing. And if you, if I gave Arlo the credit for changing my career, I'll give Hillary Clinton the credit or for changing this focus of my research. I still remember what she said at the time. Um, President Clinton had put her in charge of national health care reform policy. And one of the things she said in a speech is it doesn't matter whether you're an ER doc or a psychiatrist, if you can't show on average that your patients are improving from your care, you probably shouldn't be in the profession. She probably said it softer than that, but that's what I heard. And it made perfect sense to me. But at the same time, the kind of scientist in me said, they're going to get it wrong. They're going to measure this wrong. They're not going to risk adjust the data properly. And for those of us, like I considered myself working with the most disturbed kids in the state, I was now working at UMass Medical School. Um, I, I thought it was the perfect job for me um, running the inpatient unit for the most disturbed kids in the state. How could you possibly compare my outcomes to somebody that deals with adjustment disorders in a school population? Like it doesn't make any sense to me. So we got to perfect the science. And I basically been on a 30 year quest to make that science really good um, and then figure out what, what to use it for. Um, I, I would say there are three big studies that we published to date. The biggest one is the one that JAMA just published in September, um, which is the first randomized clinical trial of a referral process in healthcare, all fields of healthcare. And what we were able to show is that how you refer, how you assign cases is as or more important than treatment itself. And when you do it wrong, clients get worse. And when you do it well, clients have amazing progress. And so when I started measuring my own outcomes, I realized I, I was good at treating kids and families with multi-generational histories of trauma, but there was a subset of my clients that I was horrible at. And by horrible, I mean really bad. So if you take kids 
adolescents that have significant substance abuse issues, they ended care with more substance abuse problems than they started. That's not good. And our data shows that all of us, for the most part, have areas where we are harmful. We don't know it. Uh, and if we can identify it and eliminate it, great things do happen. Um, and our study that we published in, in JAMA was a very simple, elegant design. Once we had discovered that process, we went to the Cleveland Clinic. We went to their primary referral pathway out into the community. So when the family practice, family medicine clinic at the Cleveland Clinic wanted to refer to behavioral health, they referred to this practice uh, out in the Cleveland area. And the therapists that were involved in the study saw patients in both groups. The control group was they matched the clients to providers based the way they had for many years, which was people would raise their hand and say, I'm really good at anxiety disorders. I'm really good at substance abuse. I'm really good at depression. And the intake staff would assign cases based on those self-perceived strengths. And they were getting good outcomes. They were getting, based on our data for millions of patients across the country, they were getting risk-adjusted good outcomes. Um, but by figuring out and looking scientifically at how they did with their last 30 patients and using that to predict how they're going to do with their next 30, we were able to double those outcomes. We didn't change anything that the providers did in treatment. We didn't tell them to, that they had to use CBT or some other evidence-based treatment. They were able to do what they thought was best. And so by just simply assigning them cases that they had historically hit out of the park and done really well with, we were able to uh, double the outcomes. The, the outcomes were rather staggering. They, they, the average client ended care about um, not just within the general population average, but at the general population average. And they maintained those gains for at least a year. Were you able to identify any subsets of the characteristics of what specifically is being matched? Well, in terms of being matched, we actually had tested five different algorithms of how to match. The best match that was able to almost triple the outcomes for patients was matching on uh, making sure for first and foremost that they were not um, causing harm in an area that was important to the client. So for example, don't give me somebody that's got a substance abuse issue or a family with a propensity for it. Number two it is to match on their three primary issues that the client had that were the most out of the norm. So let's say they were the highest on quality of life, school functioning, and anxiety. And if you matched on all three of those and eliminated harm, clients uh, came close to tripling. We also found um, specific kind of client characteristics that mattered most. So those that um, self-identified from a minority group benefited more from care from the matching, as well as patients that had more significant issues to begin with. Fascinating. How did, how does the matching, how, so how do you do that assessment, right? So, you know, a, a big, big population of who's watching us are these outpatient clinicians, either individual yeah. groups or otherwise. How does this get operationalized in a kind of an open system where it's kind of these in this, uh, as we describe? Yeah. So there, there, one way to do it is the same way we did it in the study. So the, um, it was called psychological and behavioral consultants outside of Cleveland. They had been using our system for a number of years. 
uh, we already knew what uh, the strengths were with the clinicians based on the outcome data. So a big part of what I've done over the last 30 years is creating a really good scientifically predictive outcome assessment tool that only takes about five to seven minutes for the client to complete it intake. They complete that for an outpatient kind of practice, usually about monthly during care. And that data, there are like 23 randomized clinical trials that have been published in, in JAMA that show that by doing that, you greatly improve outcomes to begin with. So they had already reaped that kind of benefit into their, their program. And then we just installed what we call the match button into the software that they had access to. And so when the client was randomized to the match condition, the intake staff clicked that button, had a short list of the, the providers instead of the whatever it was, 250 clinicians in the Cleveland area that they could get matched to. They had a subset that were really well matched and they just had to pick the clinician that was in that subset. We, since the JAMA publication, we've just released um, a consumer-driven version of this where you can go to matchtherapist.com and for free, consumers can um, complete the same assessment, take five or seven minutes, and then look for the matches that are really well matched to them. It's currently only in a kind of public beta release because we need lots of providers to be able to make that work really well. But you, you can see real providers that are matched all over the country. They just may not be in your backyard that are in what we call that A plus matching where you get the, the double, the triple, the outcome benefit. Gotcha. And so this is, is, is patient driven. It doesn't have to be, uh, in a sense, uh, given by a clinician. So it, it, we have both versions. One, one is that on our kind of wellness, what's called wellnesscheck.net platform. And that's the provider driven platform where providers can decide how and when they want to assess their clients' outcomes and click the match button. And then consumers can also drive the bus. And I think in the long run, it's consumers that are going to decide how do I find the therapist I really want. Right sure. now, I'd say they're mostly looking on like psychology today, which is like, to me, a glorified yellow page listing. No, I agree with you. I think some of the, my experience in at least uh, the local community here is there's such a volume due to the pandemic and everything else that's going on. Uh, people are just taking whoever they can. I'll right. say at a place like Compton Baber Institute, we're always looking to, uh, right, we're measuring psychometric measures over time, trying to see it. We're using uh, OpenFit, which you've probably heard of, uh, Scott Miller's work to try to uh, get better outcomes and, and, and be predictive. Uh, I'm wondering, have you seen the application or the administration self versus through a clinician, the efficacy of that measure, what it's intending to measure being the same, or is it that much different? And why I ask that is someone like me, it's like, I have, you know, a 60 therapists. If I want to match better where we can, is it worth, it may be worthwhile that I'm not going to give them the next opening. It may be worthwhile them waiting, whatever, to get to this cluster. You know, how does a practice go about it? Uh, that's a large group practice, like, like, like I'm speaking of. Yeah. So yes, measuring outcomes in any way is better than no way at all. Um, so you're well ahead of the game there. But I, I would say the most important thing is to have an outcome system that is, has extremely good construct validity, which just comes from uh, confirmatory factor analytic work where you're able to show that I'm really measuring well depression, anxiety, and the other things that I could be treating 
uh, and it's only with something that's really robust like that that you can do the matching because otherwise you're just finding who you think are the best clinicians um, as opposed to who's best at what. So for example, anxiety, depression, and so forth. And so your system is, you can put the data on both sides, the therapist and the, and the, and as the- yeah, so, so to, your, to your question, which is better, if you're gonna do one, the client is far better than the, the therapist in, in being able to predict uh, and use that data to figure out a, a good matching algorithm. Yeah. Now I was just thinking, hey, what would it be like to somehow integrate your system where I could have a client fill it out and then our systems match because we have the dynamics of what the therapists are and it happens that way. It seemed to seem like that'd be a really cool way to uh, yeah. get, get our ways of learning mm -hmm. outcomes. So that's awesome. Cool. Uh, where, what's next for the research? Uh, well, we have our next federally funded grant that we hope will be approved in the next days. <laughs> um, PCORI, the, the federal arm that, or quasi-federal arm that came as part of, of the Affordable Care Act, uh, funded the first trial, and they're about to hopefully pull the trigger and fund an expansion of that into the real world, not with a randomized clinical trial, but it showing that it works really well in a large population. Uh, so we'll be able to announce that soon. We have uh, health plans like Aetna, um, extremely excited about how this can really help identify and solve the quality problem because the, the quality problem is quite serious, even though we're all aware of the, the kind of access problem that's currently out there with the pandemic and people trying to find care. Currently, 60% of consumers find no meaningful benefit from care. And so finding good quality care is an essential part of solving uh, um, the problem. And so part of our, our next uh, round of research is to also look at other ways to match, not just clinically, but for example, on some demographic variables, they usually on average don't make any difference in terms of the matching, but for a certain subgroup at when they self-identify, this is really important to me that I have somebody as a therapist that is, for example, not of my religion, because I feel somehow persecuted by my religion. Mm -hmm. That is obviously probably a very important thing to study. Also for the LGBTQ community, finding somebody that has helped other people deal with the exact same type of struggles, whether it's um, my gender identity or, or whatever, those, those things are, I think, hypercritical. Okay, great. Can you, can you, oh, go ahead, Kevin, we're going to say okay. something. I was going to say, can you, can you share with our listeners where they can uh, read online about your research? And then can you also share that website that's in beta one more time for our listeners? It's matchedtherapistsplural.com. And that's the best way to find the research, both synopsis of it and the actual reference to the articles, um, as well as kick the tires on it. Pretend you're a patient. See how easy it is to work. Um, yeah, I like that idea of pretending you're a patient. I know that um, that that can provide some really useful feedback. Um, you know, switching switching shoes, so to speak, and uh, kicking the tires. Is there any kind of piece of advice that you would give to clinicians who are you know interested in in kind of uh, 
learning more about this? Yeah, I, I've thought long and, and hard about those kind of uh, questions because it's a, it's a rough one. The, the, the research shows that we are not good at predicting what we're good at or bad at. So for example, Michael Lambert at Brigham Young has been studying this for a long time. He hasn't found a single therapist that's good at predicting what clients will get worse in care. His most impressive study to date was over like 440 patients and not a single experienced clinician could predict which client was gonna end care worse than when they started. The only one that got it right on one patient was a student. And so we're not good at it. We're good at providing hope. We're good at walking into care, feeling like we are the best match. That is our job. And so what, what I would say is when we're in session, use your instincts, use, especially if your outcomes are still look great, but outside of session, when trying to figure out who is the next best client to walk in my door and for me to help, you really do have to look at the data because, um, it can have a powerful effect. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the thought of, of turning a client down because you, the data, you know, explains to you that you may not be good at working, uh, may not be the best choice, excuse me, with working with that population, I think is is something that even in a pandemic, when there's such a need is, is really complex. So yeah. Yeah. absolutely. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to meet with us today and kind of go over your research. It's definitely fascinating, and it it even leaves me uh, with lots lots of things to consider, even in our whole intake process and how we screen. And you know, like you said, that self reflection piece of what are you a good uh, clinician? I know Kevin, our center for education, is uh, constantly looking to that was something that came out of our whole mission was to not just provide training, but to provide really high quality training um, so that there is, you know, that certification piece, there is, you know, that, that more in depth. Um, it's a new domain to look at now. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Wonderful. Well, thank yeah. you very much, Dr. Kels. We, we certainly appreciate your time and we'll, uh, we'll be definitely looking into more of your research to come. So thank you Great. for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. All right. And thanks so much to our listeners for tuning in this, uh, this week on The Barrier Breakdown, and we will catch you guys next time. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Barrier Breakdown, Disrupting Mental Health. Listeners can find all of our episodes on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Podbean. For more information and to learn about upcoming continuing education events, check out our website, cbicenterforeducation.com, our Facebook pages, Cognitive Behavior Institute and CBI Center for Education, as well as our Instagram at Cognitive Behavior Institute and our Twitter at CBI underscore Pittsburgh. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe. We hope you'll tune in for another guest next week.